1: The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Shalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. How many times have you listened to this program and somebody has called in and asked the question, Noah, I need something to replace OneNote or I need something to replace Evernote, or I need some way to take notes, or how do, I do, how do you deal with documentation? And over the course of the last, I don't know, five, six years, I have tried to evolve and increment that process of taking notes on Linux. And I have to say I'm pretty proud of the amount of ground that I've been able to cover, not because I'm such a smart person, but because a lot of other smart people have lent me their solutions. Well, this week... My note-taking evolves yet again. I was doing an interview with uh, Jason from Forbes, uh, and you can catch that out over at destinationlinux.org. We did that. Um, we recorded it last Sunday, so it'll probably come out sometime later this week, depending on when Michael has a chance to release it. But had an opportunity to chat with him, and in passing, he mentions a piece of software that he's using for notes. And I said to myself, so, how are you? Not familiar with this, and dug into it this week. Absolutely fantastic product. Totally a, a totally a replacement for Evernote. Doesn't even hold a candle. Really, really great stuff. We're digging into that next. Eight fifty-five, four fifty. Noah, that's 855-450-6624. Your calls go to the front of the line. Good afternoon. You're on. Ask Noah. Are you
2: talking to me in Denver, Colorado? Three oh three.
1: I sure am. How we doing?
2: Uh, well, yes and no. <laughs> if I was doing great, I wouldn't need to call you.
1: Oh, that's fair. But, but you know uh, what? We're on the track. We're already on the trajectory to getting whatever it is that's that you're struggling with fixed, right?
2: Well, I hope so. Here, here Here's what I'd like your advice on. Um, every computer that I've purchased in probably the last 10 years, I always take the Windows hard drive out of, out of it and just... Uh, buy another hard drive and put in it and then install linux and i have all these hard drives sitting around mm-hmm. with uh, windows on it that have sure. never been started up even
1: yeah and if you ever need to sell and, the computer uh, you can put the original drive back in it and yeah absolutely that's a great way to go
2: it, ex- exactly so um this latest one is a dell that has a, an SSD it's said
1: N-V-E-M, N- so i don't know what NVMe the name, you know, yeah the it's a, yeah it's an NVMe drive it's essentially a PCI drive that is either soldered into the motherboard or sometimes it is replaceable but it can be a little difficult to get to they're also expensive to replace so your 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 previous modus operandi would would have to the budget would have to increase shall we say
2: Well i have two of them two spares so um it's okay and i have the original with windows so since uh, I was having an overheating problem, actually, on the Dell, and I thought possibly it was due to the, to that SSD uh, card or PCIe card. But in, anyway, it wasn't that. But here's the thing. So I, so I end up with these two spare uh, extra drives, one of which I'm using. I'm running Kubuntu on it, by the way, and I like it a lot. And uh, so I wanted to try to clone the uh, original Windows card onto my extra uh, PCIe card, Mm -hmm. and I bought a little case for that and tried to use CloneZilla for that with the uh, uh, Windows card in my machine and booting from a USB CloneZilla, but that didn't work. So then um, I got the idea to uh, download from Dell you can download some kind of system restore software right. uh to a USB and i did that through windows itself mm-hmm. and i was going to try to restore this computer um with 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 the uh spare uh pcie card using that um usb that supposedly has the uh, uh windows restore software on it so you know, I booted uh, to to that USB, and I got the Windows logo, and it says, "What do you want to do? Do you want to completely restore this computer? It's going to turn it into an original uh, like it was, you know, from the store and all that." And, that, and that's, of course, what I wanted. And um, so um, it said, uh, "You know, it, uh, you know." I've, did the appropriate check boxes and everything, and it says, okay, now uh, this is going to, uh, we're going to restore this computer, it's going to completely wipe this drive, and um, you're going to have a new machine, you know, when you're done. Okay, well, the thing spun away for probably at least a half an hour, and it did show the percentage of progress, which was good. But uh, at the end of the half hour, it said, uh Oh sorry uh, this didn't work out uh, we haven't touched anything on your drive and uh, so it was just <laughs> just the way it was now now the PCIe card that I had in there did have a, a Kubuntu installed on it is that the reason that Windows uh, can't see that drive or operate on it effectively or what um, what what, what, what? What does I need to do to try to restore Windows on this machine with a well, with a spare card?
1: So there's there's a there's a number of different ways you can go about this. All of them I would say have a very high chance of ending in success, okay? So I'll just tell you that right off the bat. I think we're going to be able to solve the problem. Uh, let's work backwards. Let's take your last solution and and work on that. We'll work back to your first solution. How do you how do you go about restoring that drive using the recovery software that's provided by Dell? Well, Probably the reason that it didn't work is are you're trying to preserve the kubuntu installation? The kubuntu installations on the partition and you're and you're telling it to restore to a different partition is that right? Or did you give it permission to wipe the entire? No, no,
2: I just wanted to wipe the entire card. I didn't care Uh, I just wanted to get um, see if I could put windows back on the uh, the Mm -hmm. 256 gigabyte card. I just I didn't care anything about what software was on there at all. Was the I, drive? In fact, that's what I told Windows to do, but it couldn't do it.
1: Was the drive that you installed uh, was it larger or smaller than the original drive that came shipped I think with
2: the It's computer. a bit larger. It's a Samsung Evo, and the original one is. Uh, uh, I I I don't think there's a size issue, but I I I'm not a I know that's an issue, but I thought most of these replacement cards are a few gigabytes larger than the originals.
1: Yeah, they usually are. And and honestly, that would be that would be more of an issue when we circle back to the Clonezilla issue. The as far as the Dell restoration procedure, the reality is that people buy that particular model with 128 gig drives 256 drives 512 so Dell would have no way of knowing and they're certainly not going to make a restore image for every individual serial number every individual configuration right so it's unlikely that that is what's causing the problem now what probably could be causing the issue is the de- it, depending on how that recovery software is written it may not be writing to the entire drive and just writing ones and zeros it may be looking for specific partitions or at least the absence of specific partitions um, so what you might try doing is uh, is 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 removing you know using like parted magic or even uh, the disk utility inside of in, inside of kubuntu and just deleting you know live boot off of a kubuntu install delete those partitions make it an empty drive and then run that windows uh, recovery thing and see if you can't restore the original Windows uh, system that way. I-, I would imagine that would have to work. Now, the good news is if you if you still ran into problems with it, at that point, once you've removed Linux from the system, you should actually be able to reach out to Dell support, and if something isn't working, they would be able to walk you through that recovery partition because that's a prescribed way to go about recovering Windows, right? That should work.
2: Well, you would think so, but uh, my experience with Windows... Has never been good i mean this this is so par for the course I can't tell you.
1: Yeah, you and me both. I mean, that's I why I just stopped why using it. Would it would
2: take a half an hour for it to figure out that it wasn't going to be able to do it.
1: <laughs> and you and me both. Well, so so let's work back. So let's say let's say you try that. Let's say you go through that. Let's say you 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 try wiping the partition. You try booting. It still doesn't work. You call Dell. They tell you to get lost. And uh, and so now you're back to, to to where you started. Let's go back to your first solution. I like that one better anyway because it's not specific to Dell hardware, and so it applies to any computer you'll ever own for the rest of your life. As to why, there's a couple of reasons I've seen Clonezilla not work lately. Um, and, and so from start to finish, the most common thing I see is if you've not gone into the UEFI settings and, and turned off things like secure boot, uh, and, and told it that it's permitted to boot off of that USB drive and boot a quote unquote unsecure operating system. That's the first reason clonezilla is going to fail. Now I'm guessing you sound like you're a pretty technical guy. I'm guessing you got into the clonezilla, uh, installer. You just weren't able to actually complete the cloning process.
2: Yeah. Um you know um i'm sorry you know i'm i'm 76 years old and i can't remember wow. exactly uh every procedure i followed uh for sure yeah at that time but but it was like uh it either wasn't seeing uh one of the uh, one of the two uh you know uh, obviously cloning right. you're cloning a right. to b or b to a um I, I don't really know what the issue was yeah, with well, that. Uh, i just I'll... returned a little it was a little $20 case yeah. That I had hooked up to USB, yeah. and uh, I thought it would work, but I don't know. It's it's like I might need two of those cases or something like well, that. So I, there's, I have no idea. Well, I'll, I'll
1: tell you. I'll give you a check, and you can go check out Com. listen to the replay of this, and, and kind of follow the steps in, in order. But So so that's the first thing is make sure secure boots off. Here's a couple other things to check. Check to see that the enclosure that you're using actually is an mv enclosure because it's really confusing. M.2 is the is the is the how should I say connector type. the the physical form of the drive is M.2. Uh, that's the most non-technical way I, I can describe it. So you can f- physically plug an M.2 drive in uh, to an M.2 enclosure. The question is, is it's expecting SATA on that side or NVMe? Now, if you have an NVMe drive and you plug it into a SATA enclosure, it's not going to work. If you have a SATA drive and you plug it into an NVMe enclosure, oh, okay. it's not going
2: to work. I, th- I think I think that uh, you know to tell you the truth, I think that's probably what happened, because the guy at the store, my, we have a big micro center store here in Denver that's uh, really quite uh, one of the largest computer stores I've ever been in, mm-hmm. and um, the guy was trying to sell me some kind of a $60 enclosure, and then I bought the $20 one, and I think I think it well could be that it was just uh, for SATA drives, not for the NVMe mm. or whatever.
1: So that uh, that is. almost so that, cer- yeah, that's almost certainly what your issue is. So what I'll do for you, uh, uh, I will put a uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to an NVMe enclosure. They're not terribly expensive, and uh, maybe you can pick that that up and give it another shot. If that doesn't, if that should almost certainly work. And Clonezilla is really the preferred way to go because again, it's not brand specific, so it'll work on any computer.
2: Yeah. Does that well, answer your question? Uh, again, I mean, I'm just cloning the the, um, the so-called hard drive, the mm-hmm. solid-state hard drive that was in this computer, so it would still be kind of brand specific.
1: Well, the the clone I mean, would be brand specific, parent, but I'm saying the process would apply to any if if you. Yeah, th- yeah, that's
2: true. That's true. Yeah.
1: Does that answer your question? Well, yeah. no. Uh,
2: I. Yes, and I and I but before I hang up, I do. I want to tell you how much I've always enjoyed. Um, any show that you're on uh, your enthusiasm for linux to me is just uh absolutely contagious and uh i love your expertise and, I, and i'm a, kind of a sprint car fan and uh, donnie Schatz is from fargo i don't know if you know him sure. at all um but he's a world of outlaw champion and uh so on so i have a sort of an affinity to fargo uh, through uh, donnie shots uh just because I'm a fanboy of Donny Shots, but uh, anyway, yeah. Thank you so much for helping me, and uh, thanks for all the work you do uh, for Linux uh, enthusiasts.
1: Yeah, you bet. And I'll tell you what, I hope when I get to your age that I'm as technically proficient as you are. I couldn't believe it when you told me your age. I was like, wow. I hope I get to that. Uh, I hope I can get to that point. I hope I'm that technically proficient. One eight fifty five four fifty. No, it's eight five five four five zero six six two four. You're on, ask Noah. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Excellent. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. I had two questions for you, but I just solved one about 30 seconds ago. Nice. Okay. I I have one desktop machine that I built a while back that runs an AMD FX processor. And I have an issue where it skips the desktop environment. I'm running GNOME right now. It will skip and freeze every once in a while. Hmm. Now, I've nailed, nailed it down at least to a point where I think my IO bus is the issue. But okay. the problem is I've only experienced it on Fedora. And I first started experiencing it in Fedora 27, but not a, and the same thing in Fedora 28 and 29, but not in Manjaro. So my first instinct was, all right, I'm going to put a DM cache on front and see if that uh, allows the IO bus to not be filled. And that only delays the problem until I cache everything to disk. Sure. So I'm not entirely where I need, not sure where I should be looking next.
1: You know, I you said you've tried it on multiple distros and you only have it a, a problem on Fedora, you don't have that problem on on an Arch distro? Did I understand that right?
0: Uh that was about a year ago that I've tested that. I've just been uh, persistent about using Fedora since, but it only happened on Fedora. I switched to Manjaro for about a year and a half and didn't experience it. The moment I got on Fedora, the same issue came back.
1: Real okay, cuz I was going to say if it if it uh if it was persistent crowd cross distros i'd almost suspect a hard disk issue but yeah i uh you know i'm not sure it's it's obviously it's some sort of bug in fedora as far as which specific bug and how to go about solving it i'm afraid i'm not going to be much help to you okay uh do
0: you know anywhere i could like take folks so i can shoot it at the fedora community
1: you bet what i will do is uh if it's okay with you i'll take down your uh, your uh, your document your phone number and, and on all of that and i'll have somebody from our team reach out to you and get you that information Sounds good. Thank you very much, Noah. Awesome. Appreciate the call. 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Standard notes. That is the application that I've been playing with this week, and it's absolutely fantastic. 100% private, encrypted, AES-256 encryption. The great thing is, and this is always off to a great start, anytime I download an application and it it comes to me as an app image, and so the only thing that I have to do is double-click on a file, uh, yeah, absolutely. That is, uh, th- that's a great way to, to, to get the, the ball rolling. And so Standard Notes fires up. Absolutely awesome interface. It takes a little bit I'm I'm having trouble adapting to this new hashtag style future, right? I come from an old school. I like to put things in folders and I like folder hierarchy. That's not the way we organize files apparently anymore. Now we do it with hashtags. And um and so essentially there is a tagging functionality and you put your tagging functionality in and then it organizes it via views. So for example, if I had uh, all of these notes that I was completing for Ask Noah Show or composing for Ask Noah Show rather, I would add the the tag Ask Noah and then I would create a view to display all of my tags that contain the tag ask Noah or maybe I'll create a view that contain the tags ask Noah and show prep and then I can click on that view and it shows me all the notes that are associated with those tags. Really, really fantastic way to go. Obviously, they have a web app. You can go to app.standardnotes.org and you can sign up for an account there. They'll do all the hosting for free. Of course, it's open source. If you wanted to take the code and run it yourself, that's perfectly fine. The tags and categories obviously allow you to organize your notes. And extensions uh, are out the wazoo. They have a bunch of extensions. They have everything from dark modes uh, to all sorts of different things that you can can, uh, implement. The only problem I ran into or the only real drawback was the extensions are a premium feature. So you've got to pay to use the extensions. In fact, there are a couple of things that are an upsell with standard notes. Extensions being one of them, but one of the frustrating things that I ran into is I almost am at the point where I can't use an application if it doesn't have dark mode. Now, that sounds like a first world problem. That's because it is a first world problem. I have to have dark mode. And so the the extension that allows for theming and including dark mode would cost me $9 a month, $49 a year, where the best deal dollar per dollar is $149 for a five year uh, subscription to standard notes. Now, let me be clear. This is not a product that is going to compete with Sublime Text or Code EMD. I'm still going to use Code MD for doing all my show notes. I'm still going to use Sublime Text for doing client documentation. In the case of Sublime Text, I need it to run completely offline. I want Markdown support, again, another premium feature with Standard Notes. And uh, the, I, I, I've just been doing things so long in Sublime Text and having those notes saved locally on my computer and then s- synced around to other computers that I can, again, open locally without having to be online. I'm not willing to, to give up that functionality. I'm not giving to, to give up that, that feature. Now, XMN in the chat room says that it's absolutely crazy that dark mode is an upsell. And I'm inclined to agree that uh, I think that's what he's saying, or he's telling me that I'm crazy for, using, uh, for being a, a requirement for media software to have a dark mode. I just find it easier in my eyes. I find it more relaxing, and I find it more comforting to, to work for longer periods of time. It's not going to compete with Sublime Text. As far as Cody MD goes, the level of collaboration that occurs with Cody MD just cannot be matched. The speed at which that collaboration occurs, the level of integration in which the like I am not bothered when other people are editing my notes in Cody MD, and that's because of the way that Cody designed that interface. The little colored thing at the side and the text very smoothly being added in doesn't it doesn't jar my attention from whatever it is I'm working on. And to the best of my knowledge, Standard Notes has no collaboration feature. The other thing that I'm starting to really, really appreciate about Code EMD as I continue to use it up in the upper right hand corner. There is a small little icon that tells me how many of the people that are on my Code EMD instance are online and currently viewing the same note. Now, the advantage there is I was doing an interview live and J.T. Pennington, our producer, was giving me real-time feedback about what the audience was saying in the chat room and things that I wouldn't ordinarily be able to pay attention to. And we were actually tweaking that interview as the interview was going on. And the moment that I noticed that feedback stopped for a second, I looked up and noticed that he was no longer online. I thought, oh, okay, that's why I'm not getting any feedback. I'll just wait until he comes back online, then I'll move on. Sure enough, worked great. So not going to compete with Sublime Text, not going to compete with Cody MD. However, is it an Evernote replacement? You bet it's an Evernote replacement. Built-in Android app, you just sign in, all of your notes are there, except this time they're, they're synced down from the cloud, but locally encrypted, so there's no password recovery feature, because if of course if you uh, lose your password, you won't be able to unlock your private keys. Is it a OneNote replacement? Well, I'm not a OneNote user, but if I was somebody that was sitting in a college class and I wanted something to be able to take notes quick, quickly and efficiently, be able to categorize and tag? Yes, absolutely. Standard Notes has the ability to do that. X-Men in the chat room says that he likes dark mode too, especially on a USB screen that doesn't have a bright, brightness adjustment. So, okay. It's probably saying then that it's crazy that dark mode is a is, a, is an upsell. I will. <laughs> I, <laughs> as I'm reading this, I'm getting, uh, I'm getting, uh, the, the show doc is getting updated by a producer. This is great. Um, So, yeah, no, absolutely a fantastic piece of software, something that everybody should check out. Go over to standardnotes.org. Of course, we'll have a link in the chat room. Of course, that's going to become one of my staples. It was interesting to talk to Jason and find out that that was one of the first applications that he installs. He needs to install it because I imagine he does a lot of his work in there, and I can see why. Really fantastic project. Our project spotlight this week, MyOS. Now, MyOS is a Docker file that is essentially being used, and I'll go ahead and say it, abused, to be a light VM. And the idea is to allow for a portable, shareable dev environment. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, why not use dot files to accomplish that? Dot files don't usually handle package installation or other boilerplate system configuration. So then the nerds among us say, well, scripts, scripts would solve that. We can install software with scripts and we can go ahead and do system configuration with scripts. And that's true. But scripts also are only useful if you can assume the underlying OS. And if you know that that underlying OS is unchanging, different distros have different package managers and different ways to install software. Different versions of even the same distribution have various different versions that are going to install. And sometimes those require different syntaxes. Maybe you could use AMI, you say. Well, each AMI is optimized for microservices running on it. So not a one-off dev need. What this what this project does, what MyOS does, is includes dot .files, shell scripts, Ansible playbooks, just to create a consistent environment. Or at least that's what the developer of this operating system was doing to be able to get his development environment up. And so as he went to retool the system, he said, well, why not try doing this with Docker? Now, Docker, let's be clear, is not really designed to be a to run as a light virtual machine, certainly not to be used in, in, in a development environment in this particular way. But the truth is, it provides a it, it provides a basis for in-container development. And he could tack on the tools that he needed, like VI, ZSH, tmux. And a lot of the boilerplate work could be actually handled by containerization. So he designed this uh, Docker file that creates a non-root user and sets the necessary permissions. He sets up OpenSSH for passwordless login, enables X11 display server. It was originally based on Ubuntu proper. That was the base operating system, but he said that it wound up causing too much hacking. He had to still tweak a bunch of things to get it to work right. So he eventually went to Fusion, P-H-U-S-I-O-N. Now that's a minimal Ubuntu base that is specifically designed for Docker friendliness, as he puts it. The advantages, super light, highly optimized for Ubuntu base image, mechanism for safely running processes, a knit for running your user as process IDP ID PID 1, or greater than 1 rather, and open SSH server out of the box ready to use other utilities that he included to make it more useful zsh as mentioned htop vim with clipboard support latest tmux built from source xoff at x display packages for clipboard support a really fantastic project and a really cool way to try to use a technology in an unconventional way to solve a problem not solvable with other competing technologies this is exactly what makes open source great the people that designed docker the people that designed container technologies probably didn't have this exact model in mind when they designed it, and yet it's being used. So if you're a developer and you have this particular problem where you need to create a dynamic environment or you have to recreate an environment over and over and again in, a, in an existing dynamic infrastructure, MyOS might be the way that you can check this out. You can check it out at com slash my-os. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. You can get those at com. That's, by the way, where you'll get All of the articles uh, that are referenced in this episode are we uh, we have an interview lined up. It's Alan Clark, and he's a member of the CTO office at Seuss, and he directs them in open source and emerging standards. Hey, Alan, welcome into the Ask Noah show. Uh, Thank you. It's good to be with you. Yeah, I I appreciate the time to talk to you today. I appreciate you taking the time out of your, out of what I assume is a very busy day to to talk to us about SUSE. So I guess let's start with this. Obviously, okay. those those of us that are in the open source world, Linux world, uh, have obviously heard of SUSE and have probably heard of OpenSUSE. So let's start with this. What is the difference between SUSE and OpenSUSE?
3: Okay, well, OpenSUSE is a community. It's a community distribution of, of Linux and obviously a lot of applications that run on Linux and they focus both on desktop and server services. Um, And so it's run independently as its own community, has its own board that's elected, uh, contributions from a a variety of people from around the world. Um, But it's also a basis that SUSE uses uh, with our engineering to develop and test our products. So the commercial production grade product releases that we have, many of those are based directly off of OpenSUSE, so it gives us the opportunity to be open and transparent about what we're working on, work with our partners and community uh, community members in the open, and give people early looks and views
1: of, of what's coming down the road. So the two are related, but completely separate entities, uh, but one, you know, they obviously you guys uh, have collaboration and, and work with each other, so on and so forth. What is the target audience for Seuss? Obviously, I think it, it, we have to specify that or drill down on that a little bit because obviously we have desktop users, workstation users, server users, cloud users, sure. but Describe the Seuss customer when your sales team goes out or when you meet people on the street and you say, who is the perfect fit for Seuss?
3: Okay, so that's a very good question. So SUSE focuses on enterprise services, right? And those services and those customers make up a variety of markets, and we scale all the way from the Raspberry Pi so very small up to very large, right? The Linux running on the mainframe. And if you look at how SUSE is used, about 80% of Linux that's running on the mainframe is running SUSE Linux. Um, if you look at Aerospace, 80% of the Fortune 500 are running uh, SUSE Enterprise Linux. SAP, of course, is you know, very well known. Uh, for running with SUSE, about 70% of the SAP applications running on Linux are running on SUSE. We could go on and on. Merchandising, retailers, automotive, uh, Fortune 100s, you know, so forth. Geographically dispersed around the world. It's one of the most widely used commercial enterprise Linux distributions in China, for example. So we're We have a lot of different markets, vertical markets that um, we run in, um, but we're very focused on enterprise-grade, providing
1: that solid platform that businesses need to run their business on. The enterprise-grade stuff doesn't surprise me at all. I guess, to be honest with you, I'm a little bit surprised about the Raspberry Pi answer in a pleasant way. I think that's a really cool thing that you guys are focusing on, so let's dig into that a little bit more. Tell me what okay. what might be some of the real application real life application environments that you would run SUSE on a pie? Uh,
3: that's a very good question. And and part of it, you think about how SUSE has expanded over the last few months uh, in pre- in you know last year preparation for their separation from Microfocus. We we we're carrying the mantra now from going from core to cloud to edge, right? And Raspberry Pi is associated a lot with edge computing. And believe it or not, we actually have customers uh, that are using these Raspberry Pis in their business. So for example, we have a customer that uh, is in um, materials, cloth material manufacturing, and they have SLAs that they have to guarantee the, you know, the quality of the material that they're producing. And some of their machines, their machines are very expensive. You're not just going to go replace those. And some of them are, you know, several years old. What they found is by applying sensors using these Raspberry Pis running SUSE Linux, they can monitor the quality of the materials that are being produced. And then tying those sensors back into their core data centers, right, gives them that real-time live data feed so that they can automate. Um, their whole process so it reduces their costs ensures their quality and and you know helps guarantee their delivery so that's awesome cool. so we're seeing yeah so we're seeing it in manufacturing we're seeing it in retail um, we're seeing it in all different kinds of markets of course transportation and governments and so forth
1: what's exciting about that to me is it demonstrates a true stewardship of open source and the open source community, right? Because you're not just, you're not building just for enterprise because there's a dollar in it. You're providing valuable solutions to people using commodity hardware, things that people can buy off of amazon.com and utilizing their business. And you embrace that open technology, you embrace that open hardware, you embrace that that open source ecosystem as a whole.
3: Exactly, yeah. So everything we do is open source. And you know, the, the part that I find really interesting about it is, is... It's all based on Linux, right? And you would say, well, Linux—they've been delivering Linux for 25 years, old hat. But our latest release, Sleeve 15, is multimodal, and we're very much making it flexible so that we can tailor it to fit everything. You know, from a small space on a Raspberry Pi to small containerized uh, services on on bare metal like I said, all the way up to the mainframe, but it gives us that same source code base to develop on, right? So we get that consistency from, you know, the edge clear up to, you know, the mainframe. So it's about delivering that consistency, delivering that assurance and that reliability across all platforms and architectures.
1: How would you respond to people that compare SUSE to Red Hat as SUSE being a clone of Red Hat or a smaller version of Red Hat or an offshoot of Red Hat? How do you respond to those people and how do you differentiate yourself from a company like Red Hat?
3: Well, so we are different um, and there's, you know, there's several oper- or, um, competitive oper- uh, offerings out there, you know, from Linux distributions. But we tend to focus on different things. And if you look at it, uh, if you look at a Linux distribution, it's made up of of thousands of packages, right? And it's that combination of packages and how they've been tested, the hardware that they've been tested on, and the support for those services when you combine all those pieces together. That's really what differentiates us. And... um, You know, we talked earlier about the different markets where SUSE, you know, has a commanding presence or lead in, you know, from finance to retail to automotive to aerospace and so forth. It's because of the way we've put all those packages together, tested in them together, made them easy to install, supported and reduced their risk. Um, That's what makes a a difference and a winning difference for SUSE.
1: Talking about winning differences from SUSE, can you go into some of the technical advantages that a customer might come to expect uh, from SUSE? What are some of the technical advantages of using SUSE over a, okay. uh, over a competitor's distro?
3: Sure. Um, in fact, we could use a, a, an announcement, a product announcement that SUSE had just made uh, a few days ago. Um, we announced the availability of what I would say is the first enterprise-grade Linux image for SAP HANA for large instances on Microsoft Azure. I know that's a mouthful. Basically, what it is is very large images of SAP running on SUSE Linux, running on Microsoft Azure. And that's way cool because there's SUSE, there's SAP, and there's Microsoft, and we've worked together, right? So it's SAP-certified. We collaborated with Microsoft to support those workloads. It means we're running in SAP HANA environments up to 60 terabytes. That's huge, right? We've optimized that. We've, we've done performance tuning on that, tied in with our partners, right, with Microsoft and SAP, working the three of us together to produce this new product and make it available on the market. I think that's way cool, and I think it demonstrates – kind of the heart of SUSE. One, we're open source. Two, we love to work with partners. And three, we love to deliver new and exciting uh, features and, and products to the market.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it. That is really exciting. That's absolutely fantastic. Congratulations. Digging in a little bit to your your relationship with your partners, can you speak to the possibility of purchasing hardware pre-installed with SUSE? I know a lot of customers out there are just going to say, well, I'll buy a server and I'm gonna buy it with hard drives and I will take care of loading the operating system so I can get it loaded to my specifications. Um, so, and we understand that in it, with any company to any real size, that's the way they're going to do it because every environment is different and requirements are different. And so the software needs to be loaded in a very specific way. But for customers that are maybe looking for a out-of-the-box solution, is there a way to purchase hardware pre-configured with SUS?
3: Um, there is through our partners. So SUSE doesn't buy the hardware and, and ship it, right? We're not a we're not a hardware vendor, we're a software vendor. So we work with uh the Dells and the HPs and the Lenovos and uh you know, all those those hardware companies to deliver these services on their hardware. And we usually uh, pick configurations and test those, uh, do thorough testing on those, what we call our YES certification, to ensure that our software will run on those. So those types of purchases, you know, the appliance type purchases usually happen through our partners. Um, And in some cases, you may not even know that SUSE is part of it, Uh, particularly like in the embedded space. Um, you'll you'll bu- be buying in retail space, you'll be buying these products, uh, and you may not even realize that SUSE is running on there because it'll have uh, some application name on it and, you know, the, the vendor, the hardware vendor's name on the hardware. So it might be a case you don't even realize you're using SUSE. I get a kick out of that sometimes when I go in a retail store and go, oh. They're running our stuff. <laughs> That's and awesome. People there have no idea.
1: I might, actually, I might actually have a suspicion. I might have to ask you off air about it um, <laughs> because I have run into something that I've looked at and I've said, that looks like Seuss to me. Speaking of which, Seuss yeah. is kind of uh, uh, well-known and well-respected for its implementation of KDE Plasma. Uh, is is the desktop a focus for Seuss?
3: So. We focus on, uh, we definitely need the the graphics, right? The the visual uh, presentation of the software and the services. Desktop isn't a big focus uh, uh, for SUSE right at the moment, um, mostly on the server side and and remote access and that sort of thing. Um, But we do have partners and so forth that like to deliver desktops. So we, we try to make it as easy for them and, you know, as possible um, as feasible uh, for them to pick up and and leverage SUSE and its services. And like I said, we have a lot of community members, particularly in the open SUSE space that are running
1: uh, SUSE as a desktop. Kind of circling uh, back around a little bit, is there any hardware offerings um, for desktop users? Can you purchase a laptop, for example, pre-installed with SUSE?
3: That's a good question, um, and I don't know the answer to that one right at the moment. Uh, there, there probably is, but I can't point you to any specific models, unfortunately. I, d- I haven't done that research. Does Seuss and That would come through some partners. So we'd sure. Have to- you know, check with those partners.
1: And what their offerings are, of course. The, yeah. a, as far as the support model, what does that look like from a client perspective? Somebody maybe installs SUSE or purchases a server with SUSE pre-installed. Um, what, how do they go about obtaining support? What does that support model look like? Uh, if you can get into the cost structure, that would be great too. Um, what does that look like? So,
3: yeah, I can't get it. I, I apologize. I don't know the cost structure. Um, I'm not, I just don't have the, that information. Yeah, I figured as much. Um, the Yeah, the support models vary uh, depending on the, the services and the products that we're discussing. But typically, um, particularly with partners, uh, like I mentioned before, a lot of those, the customers don't even realize they're running SUSE. Um, and so in, in many instances, uh, the customer, if they have an issue, a support issue, they, the first line of call is their, the partner, right? Particularly if they're a software partner, they'll call those. And then uh, they will handle, um, you know, the first, uh, first line of, of customer interface and support, and then escalate to the second and third levels to SUSE. Now, SUSE sells direct as well, and in those cases, um, they would call SUSE directly for, you know, first line questions and so forth. So the model can vary depending on if they bought it through a partner, or bought it through a reseller or service, uh, system integrator or professional services and so forth, right? All those models can vary. Or whether they bought it direct and uh, went through uh, SUSE Salesforce or through SUSE's professional services. There's a lot of different models out there. But, um, and we try to make it as simple and easy for customers to work with uh, Susa and the partner. Um, so we try to, in a lot of, in most cases, we try to make it so they make a single call and don't have to, you know, you never want to hear, I call them for support and they say, oh, well, that piece comes from, you know, a, manu- a different manufacturer, you have to call them for support or whatever. We don't want to do that. We want to give them that nice, seamless,
1: interface to work through so it, what I'm understanding from that answer is if you if you purchase a server you're, you're good to go if you already own a server and want to move over to a SUSE infrastructure that's still possible to purchase the software purchase support you just work directly with SUSE to get that on your system
3: sure sure we have a lot of customers do that right they have a lot of existing equipment they're applying SUSE on top of that and SUSE supports them Again, it depends on whether they're working through a partner or working directly with SUSE. But again, it's just a a call to one or the other, and we work together in the background to make it simple and easy for them.
1: Let's shift topics a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about OpenStack. Can you talk to me about OpenStack and what SUSE is doing to position itself to support customers that would like to benefit from projects like OpenStack?
3: Oh, definitely. So SUSE uh, recently, what? or May, so a couple months ago, they released uh, SUSE OpenStack 9, which is based on the rocky release of OpenStack. Um, and we're in the midst of an early preview of, of SUSE OpenStack 10. And, um, and I, I'll point that out for a specific reason. So on 9, big focus on, on 9 is making, and the whole focus of our use and delivery of OpenStack is to give you that infrastructure within the enterprise uh, for all the services that you're trying to de- develop and deliver to your, cu- to your customers, whether that be internal or external, right? Whatever the services are that you need to deliver. And we recognize that you're gonna have a wide range of services that you need to deliver. Some of those may be best utilized on bare metal. We're seeing a resurgence in, in bare metal Uh, particularly with data analytics and and so forth, right? Um, We're seeing uh, huge growth in the area of of containerization and and growth with microservices. So you want to be able to manage those. And we have a ton of services that are delivered in in virtualized environments, right? Those are not going to go away very soon. It's going to take years, if ever. You want to be able to manage those, you want to be able to support those, you want to be able to do that with as few resources as you you need to. And so that's what OpenStack provides us. And particularly with OpenStack 9, um, that was the big focus, is is to to be able to support all those different environments and do it in a very scalable manner. Now with 10, uh, we're working with the Ardana project And um, we're actually going to containerize our whole release of OpenStack. And so we're giving our customers an early preview of that so we can get their feedback. Again, this goes to being open and transparent about what we're doing. So we're seeking their early feedback so that we can tailor that and adjust it to fit their needs. So I'm pretty excited about the work that's going on on that effort. What if any of oh, that said Ardana, I meant airship. I made a mistake there. I meant airship,
1: not Ardana. Apologize. No, no project. worries. No worries at all. What if any effect does the partnership with EQT and now your independence have to do with the future uh-huh. of Seuss? Where do you see uh Seuss going?
3: So I'm pretty excited about EQT. So it's you know, that deal's been done for a couple months and there's a couple things that I, I really like about it. One is uh we've got the continuity of our current leadership team, right? So it wasn't one of those deals where they come in and replace all the leaders, but we've got the same leadership we had before and those guys are doing a great job. And so they're able to continue. We've got that continuity, you know, and they're very focused on securing long-term profitable growth. So we're a profitable company and they've got very long term vision. I'm really excited about that. But they're very they've got a very sharp focus on customer and partner success. So two things there. One long term, two customer success and partner success. Then the other part with EQT is they're investing in us. They're investing for uh opportunities for more go to market capability and I'm really excited about that. So those two two things tied together is giving us great momentum going forward. So I'm pretty excited for the rest of 2019 and really for 2020.
1: That's outstanding to hear. I'm glad to hear that, that Seuss has a, has a plan for going forward and that things are looking well. I do want to ask, with the number of times that Seuss has changed hands, uh, do you see this being the last deal, uh, or the last deal at least for the foreseeable future? Or is, <laughs> I mean, is I have to ask, do you see it, it getting That's bought out or question. changing hands again? Uh,
3: you know, I I think with the momentum that you see, and particularly around open source and all the the deals going on with uh, companies that are um, deep deeply embedded into open source effort, right? So they're using open source. Business models. Um, we're seeing the value with those. So I, I have no idea right what EQT will do with, with susa or not, but I sure. do see that the value
1: of SUSE will continue to grow. Alan Clarke is a member of the CTO office of Seuss and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah show. Alan, thanks so much for taking the time to sit down with us and chat about Seuss and give us some insight into the direction and the value of SUSE. We'll get you back on the program soon. Thank you, Noah. I appreciate the time. Have what- a great day. One eight fifty five four fifty Noah. That's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Hey, thanks for ringing in there. You're on Ask Noah. Good afternoon.
4: Hi, thanks for um, having me.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> um, if I have a new server, um, I'm trying to set up Ubuntu with it, and I was going to set up a data disk, and I have um, two two terabyte drives okay um what kind of software would you recommend for a software raid
1: i would not recommend a software RAID in the traditional sense what i would recommend doing is lvm logical volume management are you familiar with the technology uh, yeah okay so that that's what i would that's what i would recommend doing and here's why um if the the the, the reason that we go to software raid type solutions or even hardware raid type solutions is because we're bu- trying to build up redundancy and the problem with RAID solutions are they're oftentimes very inflexible. If you want to, if you want to grow a, an array or shrink an array or change out drives, you know all of those things um, become much more complicated inside of uh, RAID structures. And so, what LVM allows you to do is gain a lot of the same sort of redundancy, but you don't have to sacrifice your flexibility. I can actually in I can actually grow an entire LVM vo- uh, system, uh, swap a disk out, move all the data off of it, swap a disk out, put a new disk in, uh, migrate the data back onto there, swap the second disk out, migrate the data back onto it, and then grow the entire volume all without ever rebooting the machine. Like, that's something that just doesn't exist in RAID. Uh, does that answer your question?
4: I mean, I guess... I guess, uh, I, I, I guess uh, for for Ubuntu... Um, I guess I could also just shoot forward ZFS, right?
1: Yeah, and I mean, yeah. If like you want, bug. so yeah. If you're so, if you're if you're stuck on if you're stuck on like I, I want, I want some sort of a RAID functionality. ZFS on Linux has gotten very, very good to the point that I would be comfortable putting it into production, and that would not have been my answer six months ago. Um, but it's no longer a DKMS module. You're no longer comp- compiling things into the kernel. It's native on on Linux, and the 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 developers. To include Alan Jude are working on getting OpenZFS uh, code base standardized across all platforms, so it'll be the same code base on BSD, on Linux, on Windows, on Mac OS, wherever you want to run it, it, it will be there. And and obviously ZFS has far more advantages than any, um, than any, than any software RAID utility that competes against it would be. Obviously MDADM would be the the go-to. Linux software raid solution. If you wanted a utility that you actually insist on doing, you know, proper RAID. Uh, but ZFS is a a better choice and LVM is a better choice. And if I had my choice between those two, I'm probably going LVM just because there's so much support infrastructure around it from companies like red hat and, and so on and so forth. Um, ZFS is getting there though.
0: Okay.
4: Um, and can I give a quick shout out? Yeah, please. Um, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, I'm hosting a uh, Linux user group, and uh, tonight's the first night for it, uh, calling it day zero. Um, I, uh, we're going to be doing it on the first Tuesday of the month in Albuquerque, so if anyone that's in the New Mexico area they might be interested, um, I set up a WordPress for the uh, user group. It's uh, abqlug.com.
1: I, is it okay with you if I add uh, if I add that to our weekly or to our monthly lug alert
4: uh, yeah that's totally full
1: ABQLug.com, is that right yep you want to give the venue and the time and all that stuff
4: um it's at ideas and coffee over by San Mateo in Indian school Um It's going to be going in five minutes, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. on every first Tuesday of the month. Awesome.
1: Thank you so much for doing that. Thank you for doing that, for reaching out to the community and and being a place that people can come and get involved in Linux. We want to support you in any way we can, so we'll continue to mention that uh, during our, our monthly Lug Alerts. And thanks for the call. Oh, thank you. 855 450 noah That's 855 450 6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. You two can send your comments in to that email. We'll answer them on the air feedback section. Sam writes in and says, Sam from the Netherlands here, recently on your show, you talked about Cody MD. Yeah, we talked about it tonight too. I wanted to try it out for myself, so I cloned the repo, did a Docker compose, and was able to get the web page for Cody MD. After this, I got stuck. I had to provide an email and password to log in, but I hadn't set up an email or password to log in and I couldn't find anything in the documentation. My question is, how do I set up an admin user account for Code MD? Sincerely, Sam. <laughs> Code MD is a funny piece of software, I'll tell you. it It's one of those things where you have uh, it, it, things that seem like they should be fairly obvious are not fairly obvious, and Everything else has a given way of doing things. You set up a router, there's a default username and password. You set up OS ticket, there's a default username and password. All of a sudden you get to Cody MD and there's not a default username and password. It confuses everybody. The truth is what you do, uh, Sam, is just go to your Cody MD instance and up at the very top corner, you'll see a button that says sign in. Click on that. And then instead of clicking on sign in, once it prompts you for your email and password, just click on register. And then you can type in a username and password, and you can create an account. Now there's a way you can go back into the config, and turn that off if you don't want people to be able to create an account in the future too. Uh, that is in the documentation. If you have trouble finding it, give me a call. and We'll be happy to uh, to help you out that way. Dennis K writes in and asks about a VoIP question. He says, "What's the easiest way to set up a co-op service on my Android phone? Is there any good free provider out there?" Well, Dennis, if you want to make calls just in network, that is to say, you want to give everybody account on your an account rather on your system well then there is a way to do that and the way to do that is just set up something like asterix or 3cx now we've actually migrated all of our stuff here over to 3 cx and i think it's a better system the problem is it's not open source and so it it does have that rub against it now that's not going to cost you anything other than what it costs you to actually purchase a server and, uh, and, the, and the runtime for it. Now, if you want to tie it into regular phone systems and being able to make and receive calls with other telephones, there is no way to do that for free, per se, because obviously whoever the phone provider is has to do that for you. Now, we have a deal worked out with uh, a friend of ours that sponsors this show, and their name is Vox Telesis. You can get a deal by going to voxtelesis.com slash AskNoah and they will give you a $25 credit so you can try their service out for free. And uh, if you're me, you can milk that for a couple of months because they only charge a penny per minute and a dollar per month for your, for your phone line. Uh, and so it's an incredible deal that they've given us and stu- absolutely fantastic service, both customer, customer service as well as their technical service. And these guys are true Linux guys. Uh, they run everything on Linux up to to include their desktops and their laptops. Everything runs Linux. Uh, and so we're glad to have them as a, as a partner on the show. Steve S. writes... Actually, I'm not going to get to Steve S. We'll we'll save Steve S. for next week. Hey, if you want to send your comments into live Ask Noah show, live at asknoahshow.com, we'll get them on the air. And, uh, of course, make sure to head over to podcast.asknoahshow to check out all of the show notes and resources that we mentioned in the show. If you want the latest, of course, follow us on Twitter at asknoahshow. show. You can also follow me personally at Linux. I tweet out some fun things from time to time, including a change my mind this week, interestingly. Hey, the Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. A huge thanks to JT, our producer, Sarah, our call screener. This hour of the show may be over, but we got plenty of more content for you at AskNoahShow.com. Also, check out youtube.com slash mindripmedia for video-focused Linux content. We'll see you right back here next Tuesday.